Hi, this is County Executive Steve Shu of Anne Arundel County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Mako's Policy Associate Kevin Canale here, as always, with my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin. How are you today? Doing great. So, Sine Die has come and gone. The confetti has been swept up. We've seen cars rolling out of town with bags packed. Hotels are empty. It feels really weird uh, here in Annapolis, but that's what happens when the legislators leave town. Right. It's. I mean, Maryland is, is like a lot of states. We have a contained legislative session. Uh, where some other states kind of meet on and off all through the year. We have 90 days, full bore, and then actually you drop the gavel, you drop the confetti, and then – Literally, literally, Tuesday after session is this is this weird exercise of having a bill signing ceremony where there's a lot of bleary eyed, tired legislators and advocates, and and we're recording on Wednesday morning, and there's practically tumbleweeds here in Annapolis. I mean, the traffic was great this morning. There was nobody around. It's very odd, but it's back to our pre-session uh, tone here in Annapolis, and. Uh, a lot of bill signing still to come, and now uh, legislators make that transition into campaign mode. Yeah, so it's it's, it's part of the ritual here. A ninety day session, it really requires everybody to work awfully hard, and especially the last few weeks of session where there's this big flurry around the crossover date, and then all sorts of things going going on the last few weeks, and down to the last you know the last night, there's always a crunch of things. Are they going to have time to pass and get through the whole process? We were watching a bill. Or two right down to the wire as well. Um, but it, there's sort of this shared mentality that we can all suffer through this and, and work these long hours and, and you know, chew our fingernails down because it's over on Monday night. And, right. and, and fortunately, this year is not going to be an exception. It's over. It's over. And speaking of issues coming down to the line, to the finish <laughs> line, uh, last episode, we talked about some big issues that we thought were going to come right down to the line. The goal today is we're going to update you on those issues. We're also going to do sort of a general breakdown of the session for MAKO, talk about some bills that we were involved in, um, and then we'll leave you with some closing thoughts. So, Michael, let's jump right into the big issues that we discussed on the last episode. Uh, the first one is school safety. So, the General Assembly did pass Senate Bill 1265. That was uh, the primary sponsor was Senator Klaus Meyer. And um, very interesting process. The Senate added an amendment that would have required a school resource officer or adequate police coverage at not only high schools, but also at public, middle, and elementary schools. The original bill called for this coverage just to be at high schools. Uh, The House then took the requirement for middle schools and elementary schools back out of the bill. So it's only for public high schools uh, for the upcoming school year. And then for the 1920 school year, it will be public high schools, middle schools, and elementary schools that will require either a uh, school resource officer or adequate police coverage. There's also some money in that bill, $10 million a year to help uh, install this this adequate police coverage. But, um, Michael, what are your thoughts on how this unfolded? And it was a really interesting floor debate as well. Yeah. This, I mean, we knew when we were when we were doing the pod late last week, we, we felt confident that a bill was going to pass. 
and there was a, an, enough support and pressure for something to go into law. We knew there'd be some sort of commitment. What it would look like wasn't clear. And really, even even until Monday, things weren't totally clear. O- over the weekend, the House really dug into what the Senate had passed. And this issue of exactly what is going to be a requirement rather than an expectation or an aspiration is where the rubber meets the road. This is I would say, I mean, hats off to the to the legislators who put a bunch of time into this because I think this product got better as it went through the process. And that's how it's supposed to work, right? right? I mean, in, in, in theory, and sometimes people can be cynical about public participation and the role of interest groups and lobbyists and so forth. And that, that, that's fine. That's healthy, too. Mm-hmm. But th- this was a case of things working more or less correctly. And the House Ways and Means Committee basically had a blender of a hearing and a and a and a work session and a voting session all in one with lots of stakeholders in the room so you had people from the school boards and school systems but you also had public safety professionals and local governments and the various advocates for students and and students with special needs and so forth so everybody in the room and an opportunity to say we're worried about this phrasing i think that's more than you meant it to say right and the committee, I think, rolled with a lot of things. They took a number of amendments on the fly. Um, and, and anyway, over the space of a few hours, that bill went from being something that our local law enforcement was really concerned about being able to gear up for this fall to, to meet those standards to saying, oh, well, we can we can work with all this. Right. We can work with just the high schools for the upcoming school year, and then we'll tackle the uh, middle and elementary schools in the following year. Um, but it was fascinating to see that unfold uh, right before our eyes. Hats off, as Michael said, to uh, the committee members and the committee staff at DLS Um, Everybody did a great job to move this bill forward. And the bottom line is with school safety, um, the General Assembly set aside around $41 million in the budget for school safety. This bill puts another $10 million mandated appropriation in every single year that will help, again, with this adequate coverage or SROs in public schools. And and it's not like school systems and local law enforcement aren't already committed to making school sites safe and to be doing the patrols and the coverage that, that that are yeah that makes sense. Um, what you don't want to do is put something in state law that says here's exactly what you're going to do at each school and have that become Annapolis policy and then it doesn't work in Garrett County or Worcester County or other places in between. So you know the idea of let's let's bring together all, you know there's going to be a new state sub cabinet on school safety. Mm-hmm. That's a venue to hash some of this out. It's going to have an advisory board with lots of stakeholders. That's that's a good step. And for them to be the ones that guide, here's what we think a local safety plan ought to look like and the cases where you probably need a resource officer on site and other places where you probably don't want that, but you want to have some other coverage with patrols or, or you know, or, or, or your local law enforcement engaged. That's that's the right way to do this. Yeah. And so the Center uh, for School Safety here in Maryland will develop those standards with local input. And that is very important because one size doesn't fit all in this this, uh, in this right. voyage. So we will see, but um, they did get a meaningful bill passed like we predicted. So very good outcome for school safety. Yeah. Everybody at the table. Everyone at the table. Mm-hmm. Good bill. 
Let's jump next to uh, the lockbox bill. Uh, This is another education bill that we have discussed extensively on this podcast. Essentially, uh, what this bill uh, does is it says we're going to put a question on the ballot in 2018 for the Maryland voters to decide whether or not they think that casino revenues should be uh, dedicated to public schools on top of the current formulas. So the idea here is that those revenues uh, do not supplant funding, but they supplement funding. And, Michael, that bill came down to the end, to oddly the wire. It to, oddly enough. It was a little surprising that that was, that was held on. We, we speculated a little bit a few days ago that why is this held on? Maybe it was connected to bigger picture decision on income taxes and so forth to make sure you didn't make this commitment first and then realize there's not enough money to backfill. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, as a practical matter, um, we, we were not sure late last week whether this was going to get done, although I think think we both had our chips down on the bill's going to pass, and and sure enough, it did. It did. So this is the General Assembly version of the lockbox bill. The governor also had a version which would not have put the question on the ballot. It would have done it through statute. But nonetheless, a casino lockbox bill has passed the General Assembly, and you will see that on the ballot uh, in the next election. And Marylanders are going to vote yes for it. Overwhelmingly. Bold prediction. I would guess. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So Um, So we got some of the education bills that came down to the wire out of the way here. Let's talk about another uh, major bill that we discussed that came down to the wire, and that is the crime bill. And, uh, Michael, this was another fascinating debate here in Annapolis over the weekend, particularly on the floor in the House. Yeah, real twists and turns with this. And I think when we last recorded, we were talking about the action between the House and Senate committees that do public safety issues and how they were failing to see eye to eye, how some stakeholders and and advocacy groups were – crying foul over legislation that over issues that may or may not have been accurate uh, that's that's a that's tricky footing for legislators who are trying to do right if groups who support you or groups you're generally in line with are saying please 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 vote this way and your heart says no we didn't we didn't do those things you're saying that's that's tricky enough um, we didn't know as of you know, as of last Friday what was going to happen here. It really did feel like there was momentum for for something to happen as a reaction to violent crime in Baltimore and 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 other you know related issues. So it felt like something should could would happen. But how does it come together? Um, I don't think either of us had had the key for that. Turns out the House basically found a marriage between two ideas that were both difficult to pass on their own, but bundling them together turned out to be the solution. Right. So one of the controversial measures in this bill is the 10-year mandatory minimum sentence for a second offense of using a firearm during a felony. Uh, Obviously, mandatory minimums are very controversial, particularly in progressive states. Um, But they found a way to combine that with an expansion of offenses that are eligible for expungement. And that, of course, is the process for erasing a person's criminal record. So really, the expungement piece was sort of the sweetener um, to get the folks on the other side who Mm -hmm. did not like this idea of mandatory minimums on board because you're expanding now uh, folks who can get expungements from their record. And and – if you if you believe that having a criminal a criminal item on your record in the past is a major hurdle to getting a job, getting gain you know getting gainfully back into society and so forth, a lot of people believe that this is a fundamental issue that people have been struggling for broadened expungement for years, mm-hmm. and so 
so and that has been a tough sell on its own. We've we've seen bills like this in introducing. Well, let's do that one thing, and that has been a tough swallow for people who are concerned about. Well, what about an employer who doesn't know something happened ten, fifteen, whatever years ago? Right. So and you know expanding that into some felonies, nonviolent felonies. That's what this bill is about. Right. But um, expanding it into some felonies and saying that after a period of time you can have that expunged was a really big deal for some some you know believers in social justice so so that being the bill that you put a mandatory minimum concept into and a lot of folks th- those two words are enough to say no I can't do it uh, this bill was talking about you know two time gun offenders um, in violent crimes so i mean it, it we're not we're not we're not here talking about you know people who have you know, parking tickets. Right. They lose the. You know, they, they end up losing their mm-hmm. license. They drive without a license. They you know they end up getting you know getting a conviction for that, and then end up unable to get a job. I mean, right. that's your classic. Let's let's have an expungement, or let's let's not have mandatory minimums affect people who are doing relatively trivial and 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 and, and minor offenses. Have them rack up like that. Boy, um, this was tough, though. I mean, at the end, here's the bill with these two things in it, each of which is relatively controversial. Put together, you had some people in the middle of that sort of political Venn diagram saying, well, I, I get the expungement stuff and I really wanted that so I can hold my nose on the mandatory minimums. And, and honestly, some people doing the exact opposite, saying – I think we need to respond to violent crime and gun crimes so much that I'm willing to hold my nose on the expungement side. Yeah, it it was you could hear uh, in some of the lawmakers voices on the floor um, that they were truly conflicted. um, But because the bill married these two issues together um, and this bill had to pass, right, they had to pass some sort of crime bill. A um, lot of pressure to do so. And um, this is what made it work. And I think you, you nailed it. The folks on both sides of this issue, they were able to find common ground because you're talking about the expungement piece and the mandatory minimum piece. And I also think that, yes, because we're talking about violent criminals who are using fel- uh, firearms in the commission of a felony for the second time, I think that also made it a little bit easier for lawmakers to swallow that. We're not talking about people getting picked up for marijuana possession or anything like that. Right. This is for the people who are committing violent crimes, and uh, they've already had one shot. The second shot, um, they're now going to be subject to a mandatory minimum. So um, there's there's pushback for votes like this, and there are some people who will – who will have to stand up before their voters and before advocacy groups and explain, you know, this was tough, but I did it, and here's why. We heard some of that on the floor of the House. I mean, that's that's what that's what the campaign is about. This is an election year. It was a tricky bill. Doing nothing would have had its consequences as well. So, I mean, that's that's the nature of the game. Yeah, you heard a lot of let me explain my vote mm-hmm. on the floor. So yep. you can see them already preparing for um, potential pushback that they may be getting on yeah. the campaign trail. There's some of that ahead. So now let's jump into uh, a bill we, re- we didn't really discuss um, on the podcast, but community college promise programs. Um, this is an issue that we are seeing pop up across the country, and we can get into that more in a second. But essentially, the General Assembly um, approved legislation that more than doubles scholarship money available to low-income students for uh, community colleges. Um, Great step in the right direction for our partners at the local community colleges. This is something that um, was high on their priority list this year. Uh, The bill went to a conference committee and eventually uh, popped out with $15 
million dollars, um, you know, dedicated to community college uh, promise programs. And essentially what this means is you're providing more avenues for low-income, at-risk uh, students to uh, get into community college and not have to worry about how they're going to pay for it. And this is something that we've seen being done state by state by state. It's sort of making its way across the country. And Michael, maybe that's because the federal government um, has not been able to act. Uh, yeah. Even though the idea is floating around Washington, various senators and uh, yeah. Congress people have that idea, but they haven't been able to do anything on community college affordability. I think it's even it's even bigger than community college. It's just the yeah. access to higher education yes. and the kind of education that can prepare a workforce for technology jobs or you know stable, high paying, competitive jobs in the sort of global marketplace. I mean that's that's a it's a centerpiece to a modern economy. You want the United States to be competitive in lots of different ways. Um, having an educated workforce is a really big part of that. So we've got a societal interest in that being the case. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we also have a crisis in student debt. And and the, the numbers are absolutely staggering. The number of Americans walking around with debt that they can barely keep up with, looking for ways to refinance or you know get relief on it and so forth. It's become a political issue at every level. Mm-hmm. But regrettably, I don't mean this as a partisan comment, but we've got bipartisan gridlock in Washington, D.C. So this seems like it's one of those topics that has just devolved from – instead of this being a congressional solution, it's turned into the kind of thing that state by state we're seeing action. So I I probably would have bet wrong on this. I wasn't sure that that Maryland was going to end up with a resolution on this that was as bold as it came out. But a a $15 million commitment to help – you know, help Marylanders go to two-year schools, I think is ultimately going to mean a lot of people who are really worried about carrying debt, really worried about making that life choice, will have will have it available to them. And you get a running start with a two-year degree, whether that's the beginning of a four-year degree mm-hmm. or whether that's just getting you ready for an, a nursing degree or an associate's degree in accounting or something else that gives you a lane – um, I, I think I think you're going to see a number of you know a sizable number of Marylanders get on that track who might not otherwise have been able to. Yeah, and we know that we face shortages in the job markets, uh, specifically in tech jobs, um, career and technical uh, jobs, which our community colleges do a great job of preparing students for. So I think this is a win for everybody. This is a bipartisan idea here in Maryland. The bill passed with bipartisan support. So very good to see this issue moving forward. And I know our friends at uh, the Maryland Association of Community Colleges are very excited. Um, This is going to enable them to do their job much more efficiently, reach out to more students, and also potentially take some of the pressure off county governments who provide a great deal of funding to our local community colleges. So it's a win for everybody. All right. So it's, I mean, this is a little different than the conventional state commitment to community colleges Mm -hmm. where, where where there is some, I don't know, core funding that the state provides, county governments provide core funding, and that nominally is is intended to cover 
I mean, uh, in a in a more nearly perfect world than the one we're in, right? Uh, the the vision was supposed to be one third, one third, one third, and the counties put up a third of the funds, the state puts up a third of the funds, and the students put up a third of the funds by way of tuition. Right. Over time, we've seen some some sort of selected groups that that we waive tuition for and so forth, and that that has depleted the t- tuition sheet p- pieces a little bit. Um, what's kind of been missing is the state commitment to core funding. But if the state can pony up some on the tuition side and basically say, we're going to provide a scholarship, the, the school doesn't have to go without that tuition money. It just comes from a different source than the student's pocketbook. This is, it, it, it potentially is a game changer, I think. Yeah. So initially, just to, to, to follow up on that. So initially, the idea was a third, a third, a third. It was 29% for everyone. Currently, counties are uh, covering 38% of community college funding and tuition is covering 40%. Uh, the state has not gotten up to its uh, the intent of the Cade formula, which was the 29. So nobody wants to see uh, students' tuition rise. That's why counties have been have been there, quite frankly, for our community colleges when they come and ask for more. But, you know, um, there are circumstances where that that money runs out. So it's really good to see um, a bill like this that can hopefully uh, ease the burden on our community colleges and on student tuition. Right. And this is the sort of thing that we're seeing. You know, we see this in Maryland. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, We've got a meeting in a few weeks with with other states in the the south and southeastern region. I wouldn't be surprised this conversation is coming up in, in Texas and Arkansas and Florida and Georgia and you know other places are I think having this same conversation as well. We'll have to check in with Guam. Maybe yeah, Guam is uh, most certainly has a robust program. But yeah, approximately 200 localities currently offer residents um, free tuition to local community colleges and technical schools. So Maryland uh, is jumping on board, and it's great to see. All right, Michael, let's talk about one of the final bills we discussed last week. Uh, This is the cannabis bill, another bill that we both predicted would pass because it had to pass. Um, (laughs) Just like it had to pass last year, it didn't. Yeah, it came down to the wire last year and didn't pass. So – um, but this year, I think we had optimism that they would they would do it. So the General Assembly approved uh, legislation that would expand uh, the amount of licenses uh, for growing and uh, dispensing cannabis in Maryland. And the whole idea here was to really fix the the process of how the the cannabis program came to fruition with who got the licenses, who right. didn't. There was a ranking system sometimes right. that went out of order and ended up with uh, very little minority representation in this industry. So this bill sought to fix that. They passed the bill. Right. All is good. On the grower side was the was the principal concern mm-hmm. where suddenly this became a MAKO and MML and local zoning issue over the last week of session as a, a new topic sort of got, got added on to this discussion of who gets growing licenses. We ended up with a broadened conversation about what about special circumstances circumstances for dispensary licensees and what if they're having trouble finding a location in their designated area this was debated in the senate as the senate was moving their bill and the senate ended up hanging a couple things on there basically saying well here's a hardship process for a licensee and in in my mind this was a a classic case of 
it was like a mini Pandora's box. Once you open the open the door to, well, I've got a special case, so I want I want to have a special process. Oh, oh, fine, okay. Well, the, the bill said we'll we'll let you claim hardship and move to a new location. Oh, the new location doesn't have to be in my current district. Uh, sure, that's fine. Then you get to the floor of the Senate, and it turns into, well, uh, we better make sure there's a sign-off by the county and the municipality, not just zoning. Um, sure, that sounds fine. But how's that going to work? Right. And then when you have, what if it's within a municipality, does the county have to sign off as well? Is it just who does zoning? Oh, we think it might be everybody, but let's just go ahead and pass the bill. Uh, By the time that bill came over to the House, it was like a box, you know, landing on your doorstep with a tick, tick, tick in it. It's like, whoa, this is a big deal. Yes. Um, and and, Powder keg issue, for sure. Yeah, so, I mean, and this was was a total sign. Issue. This wasn't the thing that had to pass. It was not the urgency on this bill was not about hardships for dispensary licensees. It was about adding equity and fairness for the growers' licensees. Right. So, so eventually, the House went back and forth with local governments. They tried to do their their quick, you know, you know, um, quick study on how zoning works and how all this stuff might go and who who's who's in charge of zoning in different places. And I mean, at the end of the day, they basically washed their hands of it. They took all this stuff out of the bill. It's no longer about exceptional cases for dispensary licensees. Just focus on the bill. you got to pass and pass it, and that's what they did. Right. So this issue may pop up again <laughs> next year. They kind of kicked the can down the road, but they passed the bill they needed to pass. Um, obviously, uh, local zoning is not a quick study, so I think they found that out pretty quickly when they tried to figure out exactly what was going on and how this whole thing worked, and then they just said, you know what? We're running out of time. We need to get this done. Let's take this piece out. We'll look at this later on, and we'll, we'll come back to it. But bottom line, I think we were right in our prediction uh, that they would get this bill passed because uh, the pressure would, was enormous, especially after last year. They couldn't get it done. So we did get the bill done. The cannabis bill is done. You'll hear about that bill. Um, that's the insight. That's what was going on. That's what sort of held this up. So now you know. And I, honestly, I you know, Mako sits at the table pretty routinely on all sorts of legislation. And we say things like, this shouldn't be decided in the state legislature. This should be a local government decision. Let the let the county governing body or the counties and the cities do this locally, respond to our local needs. We'll have the public hearings. We'll go through that whole process. So we, 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 we run that issue up the flagpole pretty often and try and say, you know, this bill is too intrusive. Let the locals do their own thing. And, you know, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. But that is a pretty familiar refrain for us. And there are times we sit in the committees that do land use issues mm-hmm. and we basically say you shouldn't be doing zoning in the General Assembly. Now I feel like we can <laughs> add on to that. It's like, remember this bill? Yeah. Remember the cannabis bill turned into a local zoning bill and how distasteful it was for you all to try and you know manufacture local, local, local zoning laws on the fly in state law? Yeah, you don't want to be doing that. That's why you don't want to be doing this. <laughs> now you understand, hopefully, what a mess that can turn into if the General Assembly is trying to hand down local zoning mandates. Right. So hopefully uh, they, they realize that. That would be a, a win. So we are going to go ahead and take a quick break. We've gone through the issues that came down to the wire. Hopefully you're caught up there. When we come back, we'll give you sort of a, uh, a session breakdown of legislation that Mako has been involved in, Mako took positions on. We'll get into that and more after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's get into just a quick recap of some bills that we have been invested in this year in the General Assembly. And let's talk first about local roads. Um, oh, that stuff again? I know. I, I'm, I'm sure people are sick and tired of hearing about it. But we have good news. Um, we are going to receive more funding than we've seen in a decade. And we know that that funding is going to be set in stone for at least a few years. Right. It's a multi-year commitment. I mean, the reason we keep pounding on this issue, and if you're if you're a faithful listener of the podcast, first, thank you so much. Yes. But, but second, the, the reason we keep talking about this, the reason it's the top of our list is, I mean, this is the bread and butter of what local government is about, going out, fixing potholes and making sure your local roads are safe. I mean, this is what we do. Right. So, um, and the, you know, the idea of, hey, your workhorse funding has <laughs> has been a Shetland pony at best yeah. for the last decade. Um, I mean, this isn't solving the whole thing, but it's a, it's a bigger commitment. It's more dollars. It'll let local governments do some more planning and and you know, have some sense that there's some stable increased funding rather than each year. For, for the last three or four years, Governor Hogan has put in extra funding in the budget, and we've had a year-by-year year fight each year to try and let's fight for it all, let's get part of it, let's get half of it. Right. And so so you know, this year we ended up getting the full amount of grants that the governor put in the budget, and now we've got legislation that makes it pretty clear. I mean, things can still happen, but it looks like this is a, a multi-year commitment that you can start saying, okay, now we can actually go out and do these road improvements we need to do. We'll have we'll have the money we need for for snow removal and, and all that kind of stuff. This is, I mean, this is heart and soul of, of local government stuff. So forgive us a little bit that we get passionate about paving roads. You better be passionate about paving roads if you're in local government. That's right. Um, you know, this is, you know, this is bread and butter. And local governments in Maryland uh, own and maintain 83% of the roads. Uh, this bill that uh, we just talked about, this will uh, result in double the funding um, for fiscal year 20 through 24. Um, so, again, m- the ability to plan moving forward uh, for snow removal, things like that, filling potholes, this is a, an issue that, that we see every single year. It's been our initiative. We need to have this money restored because everybody drives on local roads every single day. It's a bread and butter issue, but um, very good outcome uh, for highway re- user revenues this year. Our friends at MML also very happy about this issue, and um, I'm sure people on the podcast are sick of hearing about it. So we will move on, <laughs> but it's a big win for Mako. Just know that. Yep. School construction. We have discussed this bill, too. This sort of turned into some political theater. Um, but the bottom line is the not commission bill has a lot of great ideas uh, in the bill, uh, a lot of innovative strategies and ideas on how to uh, better handle school construction. Uh, I think it's a win for everyone, uh, except maybe one guy, that this bill um, got through the General Assembly. So, Michael, let's just uh, recap school construction. Um, we supported this bill with some amendments. We got some of those amendments added. Um, so a good good win for, for counties on this bill. Right. And, and our focus here is below the fold. I mean, we know that this issue turned into a big fight and sort of a turf battle over who's going to make decisions about school construction and who's got the privilege of hosting these decision meetings and what's the proper role for the Board of Public Works and the so-called begathon and all that sort. So that those are the those are the big capital letters on A1 of the newspaper is wow, but, you know, big big food fight over school construction decision making. Okay, mm-hmm. that that's fine. That is what it is. <laughs> 
the rest of that bill, if you if, for those people who kept reading after you yeah. know, after the the salacious stuff, the big that, that turned and, into yeah, yeah all that sort of yeah. stuff. If, if you actually took the time to read the bill or see what's in it, it turns out the bill does you know a dozen and a half different things that are all smart. Clever, innovative. They're going to promote smarter schools. We're going to be able to build some schools more quickly. Uh, we're going to have some a little more balance in the way we regulate the school building process and so forth. Um, we're still going to have good, strong, sta- you know, safe schools, mm-hmm. and and kids are going to have good places to learn. But in some cases, that's going to be done a little more cheaply, a little more rapidly. I, I think there's a lot to like in this bill, and those details are not nearly as exciting as the food fight. But from where we sit, that's what we were the stakeholders in, and we really wanted to see a lot of this stuff get done. Yeah, I mean, the innovation and flexibility within this bill is certainly a big win. Uh, this commission spent two years coming up with these uh, recommendations that ended up in this bill, and once the the big political fight started, I think you saw some of the folks who sat on that commission very upset with uh, with how the bill had been sort of wrangled into this political fight uh, because they were worried that two years of work would have been thrown out the window. But ultimately, um, the bill passed. It was vetoed by the governor because of that political fight that we've been discussing. Uh, but then the General Assembly overrode that veto. And ultimately, looking below the fray, I think it's it's a win for anyone who cares about school construction and the, uh, the innovation and flexibility uh, that will be put uh, to counties is, is really great. Right. And and one probably important observation here is the rest of the bill, the stuff that MAKO supported and the flexibility in school construction process and so forth, none of that stuff was a partisan split. It's right. not It's not that the governor and the members of the legislature, legislature who were with the governor on the veto, it's not like they hated that stuff in the bill either. This bill would have sailed with either unanimous or very close to yes. unanimous votes yes. if it hadn't been for the add-on item that turned into the political back and forth. So so there's there's really wide support for the core stuff that came out of the Knock Commission. Uh, these were good recommendations with lots of stakeholders together. So so that's, that's a good takeaway, I think. Okay, so we've gone through uh, our first initiative, which was highway user revenue uh, funding being restored. We've gone through our second initiative, which strong and st- Uh, smart funding from the state for school construction. I think both of those were very successful. Let's go into our third initiative, um, and that is uh, Next Generation 911, right? Uh, We know Next Generation 911 is coming. Um, If you don't know, we've talked about this before, but this is really an overhaul of the 911 system, whereas right now you can call 911. They may know your location, but because you're using triangulation with towers, it's it's very deep and, and thick, but but that's the general idea here, that they will have a much better idea of where you are, where you are within a building even. You'll be able to send videos, all sorts of media to 911. It's a huge overhaul. So uh, knowing that's coming, MAKO introduced an initiative that uh, really would expand Next Generation 911 in Maryland, and we've created a commission to get all the smartest folks in the room that know about these technical details with 911, get them all into one room and have them come up with some recommendations on how we can move Maryland forward uh, with Next Generation 911. That bill passed. It was a bipartisan uh, bill and uh, very happy to see that that's done. So now uh, we will get that commission rolling and um, and start getting those recommendations to the General Assembly for the beginning of the 2019 session. Right. And I think the 
bringing you know bringing the smartest people together sounds great on paper for for mako's purposes a big part of that is we need people at every level to be together That's so right. so the the state already has a numbers board which does a really good job in its lane they're the ones who make sure that state funding is allocated so that the systems are up to date and and you know that the capital needs are met in your local call centers which is a, a, an important role and it's one where they excel. They do. Um, they're going to be stakeholders in the body that we've <clears throat> created through the bill this year. But for the next couple of years, having directors of the local call centers and tech, you know, telecom company stakeholders, as well as the various state actors <clears throat> who are involved in procurement and, and, and so forth, having everybody together talking about this as a purchasing problem, as a coordination problem, an interjurisdictional regional problem. And you know, all these things confront us. We all want to get there. But I think having this statewide effort is going to make both the financing and the fundamentals work better. And what we want most of all is that the Somerset County system is going to serve its residents as well as the Prince George's County system. We don't want this to be a winners and losers, have and have nots situation. This is it's too fundamental a service to leave to, to that kind of change. Yeah, I mean, 911 is a is a local function. So um, Michael talked about the ENSB. They do a great job. I think uh, they'll be stakeholders, but we're going to look at some of the uh, issues that are outside of their uh, statutory control. Um, so ultimately, this is a big win. As Michael mentioned, we want all boats to rise at the same time uh, with Next Generation 911 so that if you're driving across the state from county to county, you will have the same capability um, all the way until you reach Ocean City from Garrett County. So um, really, really great there. We're, we're in front of the ball. I think that this commission is going to lay the roadmap for how Maryland uh, makes this critical transition to next generation 911. Yep, big deal. Um, well, speaking of 911, there's another bill that uh, we supported that essentially uh, gives counties another tool in the toolbox to recruit uh, the people who take your 911 calls, who you rely on every single day. Right. We know they have a very stressful job. And Michael, uh, we got a bill through. Uh, that will address that issue, help us recruit, and uh, just gives us another tool in the toolbox. Right. There's some has been on on the books in Maryland for a, a few years to allow you to use a local property tax credit as an incentive for employees in public safety who live in your jurisdiction. So someone who's a firefighter, someone who is a law enforcement officer, a deputy sheriff or police officer who lives within the county, you can say, all right, here's a tax break. You live, you live here. You know, you have a home in the county. You're also serving the county. We'll give you some break on your property taxes as sort of an additional incentive. I mean, it's an incentive to live within the county as well as to, to take that, you know, to take that job in public service. That's that's been granted for police and fire. This year, we've got the option to extend it to nine one one dispatch employees as well, and they they perform an important public safety function. There's no denying that they are part of the system that we all count on as as first responders. What's going to be a bigger and bigger deal is as we move to next generation nine one one, their role as coordinators and people who are going to be exposed to frontline crises is just going to increase. It's going to become a more stressful, even more important job. It's going to require more training. And 
it'll be a local government's decision. Do you want to offer this as an extra benefit so you can get qualified people to come and stay in your county? I think it's a good idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. Happy that that bill got done. Uh, again, I think this is just anticipating what's to come, and um, very exciting that we've made uh, headway on the next gen nine one one front as a whole. Let's talk about the Public Information Act. Michael, uh, this is sort of uh, half and half for us on this bill. This was a MAKO legislative initiative. We want to protect people's personal identification when they are signing up uh, for a passively, quite frankly, uh, to sign up for a government newsletter Mm -hmm. or they want to know if their kid's school is going to be closed because of snow. When they sign up for those services, they put an email in. And we don't want that data to be subject to uh, Freedom of Information Act, as we say nationally, but Mm -hmm. Public Information Act requests here in Maryland so that someone could say, county government, I want all of those email addresses, even though these people are just signing up passively to to participate in government. And there was a question of whether or not we'd have to turn that over. We want to be stewards, good stewards of that information. We don't think that should be public. That piece of our initiative passed. It sailed through. Um, We still, though, have this issue lingering with body cameras. And it seems like the General Assembly does not have the appetite um, to discuss how body camera footage is stored, who should have access to it. It's a hot-button issue, but um, no movement this year on the body camera piece. Right, and I, I think this is one where the, the devil's in the details, and it has been it, it has just been a really sticky issue. This is now three years running. The legislature has seen various bills in trying to clarify what do you do with this footage? I mean, it's it's sitting in a government office or in some contractor's office, and you've got all this this footage is, is is sitting there. Nominally, that's a public document, and someone can walk in the door and say, "I want to see it." Mm-hmm. And our, our laws governing that are basically written decades ago, with the premise that what we're talking about are file folders with sheets of paper mm-hmm. that you photocopy, and if you have to run a black magic marker over somebody's name to do that, you do that, and that you redacted the sensitive information. Right. So, I mean, that's how our laws are written. Uh, we know that these laws are not perfect for body camera footage. Mm-hmm. We know that a police officer goes into your home or is interviewing people who who have seen a crime or you know who are in, you know in 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 harm's way or themselves are victims. Right. We, we know all this stuff is being captured on film. We know it's being stored by public entities who are subject to these sunshine laws, and we know that we're not hitting the bullseye. We had, there was a commission several years ago that was talking about best practices for body cameras, and they, they came up with a list of rules for this is what a police department should do when you're using a system, and they basically took this issue and said, as far as public access laws go, we think the General Assembly needs to resolve this. Right. And the ball has been sitting <laughs> on their side of the tennis match for an awfully long time and they just haven't been able to find the balance they want. Yeah, it's a tricky issue. Um, a lot of work went into this really just upgrade, updating uh, the PIA to make it uh, so that it does uh, take a look at things like body cameras and robots and moving in uh, to the 21st century in this technology. This is not just an issue in Maryland. Many states are tackling this issue. North Carolina just said, you know what, none of the footage, no one's going to have access to any of this. That's an extreme example. But we wanted to find a middle ground here in Maryland. Uh, again, no appetite to do it this year. Uh, we'll see. Maybe there's a study that can be done. Uh, we'll 
we'll see moving forward. But um, at least we're able to protect uh, p- people who are passively participating in local government, their emails, their social security numbers. Um, that stuff will now be protected by law. So we don't need to worry about that information getting into the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. So one, one piece down, one piece still pending. And this is one that's still still sitting in Annapolis waiting for a resolution. It's in the drawer. And um, I'm sure this will be an issue again next year in some fashion. Let's talk about another huge issue that uh, we were very, very concerned with. We put a lot of work into this issue of small cell sites. Um, these We've talked about this on the podcast as well. Essentially, these are mini antennas uh, that are placed all over the place to expand network coverage from your cell phone provider. So it'll enable you to download files faster, watch movies. And the idea here is these tiny cells do not transmit signals like the giant towers do over a wide swath of area, but they focus on a very small area, and there are many of them. There was legislation that essentially would preempt local government's uh, control over their local zoning on where these things should go if they're outside somebody's house or if they're in the right-of-way. Bottom line, this year there is no legislation. The General Assembly has said local governments go back, work this stuff out with the folks who want to install these small sites. There's got to be a middle ground figure it out. We don't need state legislation to do this. If you don't do that, then maybe we do need to readdress this next year. But we think that uh, our jurisdictions are going to work with uh, the wireless providers and the small cell providers to find a common ground because this is technology everybody wants access to, but we just need to find the best way to do it. This is not a one-size-fits-all solution. I think one thing that happened on this issue is over time with legislators who were engaged, they eventually saw that there was a separation between 5G, the fifth generation rollout of wireless technology that's going to come. Yes. And that's, that's, that's not here today, but it's going to come over the next several years. We're going to see wireless companies move to a new network, a more robust and faster level of service. And that's exciting. Yes. If you're, if you're in technology, if that's your business, if you rely on it for what you do, um, that's an exciting revolution that's going to happen. And when you hear about the dimensions of 5G, you can't help but be excited and enthusiastic and optimistic, and you want Maryland to be all in. I want that today. Sure, right. So so that 5G sounds great. Right. Now the the presence of small cells small cells across places where they make sense, places that are relatively dense where you can plant, you know, you can plant something that only reaches the, the space of a football field, but you can reach lots of customers with one of those small cells. That's going to be one of the tools that makes 5G work mm-hmm. when it comes, mm-hmm. but it's not as simple as you put up this little bread box and now the whole community has lightning fast internet that's a hundred times faster than what we have today. Right. So, so the idea of, you know, in, installing and deploying small cells and having all the luxuries of 5G, they're not exactly the same thing. Right. And so, so there's little doubt that there's a market in much of Maryland for 5G service for whatever the you know whatever the customer base is going to pay for to have this high speed super functional access and so forth we want it let's get it let's do it let's go go, go grab it um, but I don't think the case was made that what you need is a state law saying we're going to put it anywhere and everywhere 
at virtually no cost and virtually no interference. I mean, what, well, what, what about the cable companies? What about the power companies? Yeah. What about local governments that are trying to put up, you know, put up a safety camera and so forth? You just had so many questions about deployment. And ultimately, a little bit like the, the cannabis discussion, I mean, this turned into – do you really want to pass a statewide zoning bill that says we're going to be able to do a 50 or 60 foot tower in every community that has an object as big as a refrigerator on top of it? And that, that doesn't have to go through any community input. Um, that's not, you know, th- this issue isn't as simple as, hey, do you want better internet? Oh, sure, I do. Right. Oh, well, actually, there's, there's a rider along with that. Yeah, so. once you start to dig in, you see all the issues that pop up. Uh, another, uh, another focus that we have here is if there's going to be this major investment in technology in Maryland, we'd really like to see uh, our rural areas get connected with broadband. That's an issue not only in Maryland, but across the country is rural access to broadband. So if there's going to be an influx of cash coming into Maryland to upgrade uh, and and make uh, Maryland accessible for 5G, we also, we don't want folks to forget about our rural counties who don't even have access in some circumstances to broadband. So I think that's another uh, issue that needs to be discussed moving forward. But uh, bottom line, the General Assembly did not uh, think it was a good idea to for the state uh, to issue a blanket zoning policy and essentially preempt local zoning. And, and I think this issue is the reverse of the last one we talked about. If the Public Information Act and body cameras is an unresolved issue and the ball is in the General Assembly's court, this one, the ball is in our court. <clears throat> yes, it is. That the reason a bill didn't pass is the premise is this should be a local decision, that you'll see counties and municipalities continue to develop processes where they can approve small cells, mm-hmm. start deploying, and so forth. We're seeing them all. It's, I mean, it's Absolutely, not like this is yeah. a fantasy that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. There are hundreds of small cells already up and running in Maryland. This is mm-hmm. not a pretend you know, fairy tale thing. So this is this is already happening. It's a matter of over the next year or so, we're going to see lots of jurisdictions who are going to pass a local ordinance saying, here's how we do it. Here's mm-hmm. how we approve them. These are the fast track ones. These are the ones that get a full hearing and so forth. That's as it ought to be. And if the industry ends up saying we can't deploy in big parts of Maryland because the local governments are being sticks in the mud, then they will have lots of momentum and justification for statewide legislation next year. I think it's pretty much that simple. Right. We also, the FCC is also lurking in the background here. Um, They could also come down with some regulations, but uh, we'll see what happens with small cells. But for now, local governments are going to work with the companies who want to install these. And um, as long as we're able to do that, everything should be fine. We don't need a statewide blanket zoning policy. Michael, let's talk about the Forest Conservation Act. We discussed this a bit last week as well. This is another issue that came down to the wire. Uh, Tell us what happened. Well, a variety of different theories about what could happen here. The core idea behind revising the Forest Conservation Act was environmental groups arguing that we are losing sensitive, critical forest areas. And in the process of developing for whatever purpose, when you cut down sensitive forest areas, there there may not be enough reforestation and afforestation going on to keep our overall canopy cover fair and appropriate. Right. So that's, I mean, that's that's sort of the centerpiece argument. Um, What ended up happening here was – 
sort of a debate about every piece of that argument. Um, a lot of it tracing back to what's what data should we be looking at? Like, what's the state of affairs right now? Uh, where where what, where's DefCon on this? Are right. we are we are we DefCon five or are we DefCon one? And that that makes a big difference. Are, is this really an alert situation, or is it something we ought to be studying, or do we need to have very aggressive new laws right now that may end up making it very difficult for local governments to continue with the local, you know, the planning that they've been doing, and especially thinking about downtown areas, municipalities, mm-hmm. and the dense part of county governments where. You want to be doing redevelopment if you're thinking about smart growth and you're responding to decades of smart growth related policies. You want to be focusing your your growth and development in places where you have that infrastructure already. Um, from time to time, that means you cut down some trees. Um, a municipality might say we've got nowhere else to go. Right. So um, you know you want us to grow. You want us to put the growth here where we've got sewer and water and we've got the road. You know the road infrastructure. Where else do you want us to put it? <laughs> right. And like you said, one of the principal issues here was the data. Like what, you know, you right. come to the table with your data. I come to the table with my data. The data doesn't match, right? So which data set should we use? How big of a crisis are we really in? So I think that was a problem. And, um, you know, I think there's a way to get that data and maybe have a better understanding of what the state of affairs is in Maryland in terms of forestation and canopy cover and things like that that are very valid to talk about. But if you don't have valid and reliable information, it's really hard to pass a big bill uh, like what this bill started out as being. And and so we ended up over the last several days of the session, we had – the Senate, with one version of the bill, they wanted to turn this into a big task force or a work group that had literally dozens of stakeholders on it. Uh, even the stakeholder list even grew when it got to the floor of the Senate, so that was a little bit of a surprise. And then the House had a completely different idea. The House said, "Let's just work on data collection and let's have the Department of Natural Resources pull together information it's got. Let's find out places where we need better data and we need to collect it, and we'll have a work group to pull." All that stuff together, but like competing ideas that were not even close. So, I mean, this is like, you know, this is like dueling banjos, except the two banjos are playing completely different music. Um, So, even if the House had ended up passing its version of the bill, which didn't happen, uh, the, the, the bill ended up getting bogged down in the House and didn't even make it out of the House of Delegates. Even if it had, we don't know whether they would have been at all in tune with what the Senate was thinking. Uh, by by midday on Monday, it was pretty clear uh, the bill had just sort of died of its own weight. I don't think the issue is over, but I think you know I think the the, the mysteries over. Where are we with the data, and you know how big of a problem is this, and what's the best path forward? So many different ideas. Uh, this just wasn't ready to go. Yeah, so uh, definitely not done. Uh, we'll see. I'm sure uh, bills. Uh, targeting the Forest Conservation Act in the 2019 session and beyond. But for now, uh, there was no movement on the Forest Conservation Act bill that we discussed briefly last week. Um, Michael, attorney's fees. This is uh, an issue that we thought would be a major fight again this year. Last year, uh, this bill made it to the Senate floor. We were able to fight it off. Um, The argument here, this is about uh, what the proponents would say is access to justice. Um, But the bottom line is, I think 
the committees who uh, considered this bill this year realized that there's a lot more to this, including some big money lawsuits. And really, I think they were able to see that, yeah, in some situations, someone may have had their constitutional rights violated, and it's it's not a big money case, but they can't get representation because an attorney, there's nothing in it for the attorney, right? There's no money involved. So for those little guys, there certainly is an argument to be made, but there's a lot more to this bill. I think the committees were able to see that this year. Um, the bills did not make it out of committee. Somewhat surprising, but we put a lot of time and effort into uh, fighting this bill, and it, it showed and it played really well in those committee hearings. Right. And we, we've talked about this a bit, and I think we, we foreshadowed this issue when we talked back in January probably as you know, this may be one of the big topics of the year. I mean, given the fight in the Maryland Senate on this subject last year after a bill came out of the Judicial Proceedings Committee, made it to the floor of the Senate, and then there were questions and a lot of back and forth. I mean, it re-referred to committee, and then it got re-voted out. Um, it was – it was a big back and forth. Ultimately, the bill didn't pass last year, so we were on defense through the fall and into the session anticipating there would be a big push. Part of what happened, though, is so much more light got shown on this issue. Um, we did a lot of that ourselves. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of work over the summer um, trying to talk about I mean, there was this argument in the air that lots of states have done this sort of thing and Maryland just needs to catch up. We just need to do what Connecticut and Massachusetts and California have done. And by doing some homework over the summer, we looked at all these different states. There was there's no state out there that has a law that is as broad or as comprehensive as what has been on the table in Maryland. Right. And that that sort of was a tectonic shift in this debate, in my judgment. Um, But at the same time, all these stories, we had, you know, you had two panels, we had, you know, 10, 11 people testify on these bills back to back on the same day in, in the Senate and in the House. And the, the committees really engaged on the subject. Part, I mean, part of that was knowing how much heat the bill got on the floor of the Senate last year, that it became itself a pretty big show. This was not a big, exciting topic before last spring. Right. <laughs> but yeah. um, it, it is now. It is now. So, so um, I, I, you know, the, ultimately <laughs> the bills didn't get out of either committee, didn't get out of the House or the Senate committee. Uh, that's what we were looking for in lieu of a compromise. We, we we felt like along the way there could have been a compromise to be had if a bill had come in really narrowly tailored that was just talking about non-money cases. Right. It was just talking about defendants who can't get representation, that true access to justice argument. We, we would probably – I mean we'd not we – were, we would not be thrilled about – Dozens more cases showing up right. that you know where 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 people are showing up with new representation in state courts because of constitutional claims. I couldn't get my I couldn't get my parade permit, or I was you know lost my right to vote for some reason or whatnot. Right. I mean, we wouldn't like to have dozens of cases, but if you're talking about small money cases and some relatively ancillary attorneys' fees with some regulation on how they pile up. It would be pretty tough for us to close the door on that, and that bill might have passed this year. Right. But the fact is, what um, the advocates for the bill weren't willing to cut the bill back that far. 
And with that being the case, they, they had a full hearing on a bill that opened the door for all these arguments about big money stuff, big money cases becoming even bigger, corporations suing local governments you know, with their in-house corporate attorneys and then being paid for them. I mean, all this stuff adding up as, as a practical matter, that bill was too much for either committee to swallow. Yep. So a big win there for uh, Mako and MML. Um, we were able to fend this bill off. And I think the homework over the interim really showed during those committee hearings and uh, a very positive outcome. All right. So let's discuss finally the preliminary recommendations from the Kerwin Commission. This, of course, is the Commission on Innovation and Ex- Excellence in Education. Mako does have two representatives on this commission. And really, uh, the commission is trying to make recommendations on how we fund uh, public schools in Maryland. Um, there was a bill this year that incorporated some of the preliminary findings from the Kerwin Commission. Um, some of those highlights include better teacher training, uh, early learning initiatives, uh, career and tech training, uh, more money, more state money for programs like that. Um, it gives counties more tools in the toolbox uh, to provide, uh, to, to address funding issues and provide quality educational opportunities. And this really, uh, though, sets the table for next year. The Kerwin Commission also in this bill has had its deadline extended. They, they ran out of time, quite frankly, last year right. to address some of the big issues that are on the table, uh, like funding formulas and uh, things of that nature. But uh, we did support the preliminary recommendations of the Kerwin Commission, and that bill passed the General Assembly. And I think the, the best way I would phrase it, I mean, first of all, nobody, we didn't hear much of anything about this bill. Mm-hmm. It had a bill hearing, it had a vote, and everybody's on board. Yes. Virtually, everybody thought, virtually everybody thought this is a good idea. These, these initial pieces make sense. Let's go. Um, and and you know, looming in the background, we mentioned earlier you know, the, the school funding <coughs> lockbox legislation that also passed. So that will be on the ballot. But the central premise – behind needing the lockbox money is we know a new school commitment is coming. It's going to come in legislation from the Kerwin Commission, and that'll be center stage in 2019. Yes. So we, we know that's coming. This bill passing easily and the lockbox passing with with references to new school funding being necessary, I mean, you, you got to say, like, the the... the <laughs> The path is cleared right. for for Kerwin to come in for a landing next year, mm-hmm. and um, this will be a really big deal. I mean, I, we, we we probably are guilty of metaphorically waving our arms a little bit in this podcast about this thing's a big deal and that thing's a big deal. The amount of money that the state currently commits to K through twelve education, that the counties commit to K through twelve, and what it would take as an extra layer on one or both of those pieces to accomplish some of these aspirations that the Kerwin commission has in mind um, is going to be a really big deal, even if you're just thinking in terms of dollars and not, for the moment, thinking about outcomes. That's right. And we want better outcomes. We want more equity. We want more opportunity coming for our school children. Uh, but the commitment, what that means as part of the budget process and the, this fiscal relationship between the state and local governments and what do we ask of each party, um, that's, this is a really big deal. Yeah, all that still needs to be ironed out. The commission will meet again uh, now that the General Assembly has uh, recessed for the year. So we'll start seeing that stuff pop up again. You'll hear us, I'm sure, talking about it on the podcast, but a lot of details to iron out. But uh, yes, the table is set for the Kerwin Commission to come back next year with some um, substantial recommendations on uh, formulae changes and such. 
So we've gone through a lot of bills. We went through bills that came down to the wire. We sort of gave you a uh, general recap of uh, some of the legislation that Mako was heavily invested in this year. This has been a long episode, I think, already. But, Michael, let's uh, close out this podcast now with the theme that we have seen in the last few days here in Annapolis, and that is bipartisanship. We have heard uh, leaders in the legislature talking about bipartisanship. We've heard the governor talking about bipartisanship. Um, what's your What's your opinion on how long this tone lasts? Uh, we're, we're going in, obviously, to uh, the election cycle. Um, I think everybody now is shaking hands and talking about we got a lot of good stuff done this year, which is true. But um, how long does this last, and, and when do we see uh, them going back to, to fighting words, if you will? Right. Um, I, who, who among us can really say? I don't. I don't think there's there's any way to put a pin in, in the right answer there. But I mean, you know, look at the things we talked about just in this episode of the podcast. I mean, coming together on school safety, which was not not a matter of unanimity on exactly what to do. Right. Uh, there was some partisan back and forth, and and the idea of having armed guards at school, rub some people the wrong way. The idea of funding these things before you've made big commitments to mental health uh, screening and treatment and so forth, that also rubs some people the wrong way. Um, finding some middle ground that brought red and blue together had almost everybody behind that bill. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's some bipartisanship in there, and you go down the list. Uh, the support for the crime bill, um, how to sort out things with the cannabis licenses, um, you know, the, the school funding lockbox, you had multiple proposals from both sides of the aisle end up getting something done that I, virtually everybody voted for. Right. So, I mean, there were there were a lot of toad boards that were really uninteresting because there weren't, you know, not, none of this, you know, 87 to <laughs> 87 to 54 or whatever, right. you know. Right. So um, as, as a practical matter, uh, there is a lot of momentum for a middle ground and Maryland getting stuff done. And part of it is, you know, we, we, we talked about this. Uh, it's a contrast with Washington, D.C., right? Uh, you know, people people grade uh, – Grade congressmen as as a unit as among the you know the lowest approval rating there is you know that's imaginable. Right. Okay, so you wanna you wanna do better than that, and you come back with results, and you talk about things you accomplished working together. It, it, it plays pretty well. We saw we saw pollster you know say uh, say uh, bipartisanship polls really well. There's there's no accident behind that. So as we people are talking about right now, Maryland's still getting used to having this early primary in a gubernatorial year, having a, a June primary instead of September like we did for decades is something of an adjustment for us. Right. And um, we'll, we'll see. So right now, a lot of people need to be thinking within their party, and that's got its own its own contours. Uh, but after you know, once we get to late June, after the primaries are settled, and some people need to be focusing on the differences between the party, mm-hmm. you certainly could see that tenor change, at least in certain districts. <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be a good bet. Uh, but yeah, for now, uh, the General Assembly, I think overall. It was a great session for the General Assembly. They got a lot of meaningful work done, and a lot of this was done uh, on a bipartisanship basis, which is great, much different from our neighbors uh, down in D.C., uh, the U.S. Congress. So really great to see. 
Thank you all for listening to the Conduit Street podcast uh, during the 2018 legislative session. We hope that we have provided you uh, with all the information that you need to understand and track these issues as Mako uh, does in the General Assembly. We will uh, continue our podcast. I don't know if we'll be doing one every week in the interim, but we'll certainly be popping in uh, to give you updates on some important issues. So keep that in mind. We hope that you will subscribe. We hope that you like the podcast. We hope you tell other friends about the podcast so we can get our word out. But that'll do it for the 2018 General Assembly session. Michael and I thank you again for listening. Uh, Be on the lookout for our next podcast. I would assume that it's coming fairly soon. But thank you again, and we'll talk to you all soon.